What's going on, everybody? Thanks so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the Justice Set Conversation. For those of you back for more, much love. For those of you here for the first time, welcome. All right, we've got episode 47 of the Justice Set Conversation with a buddy of mine, a guy who at one point was my boss, now is a teammate, and someone with whom I talk regularly, former Major League Baseball player and current sports broadcaster in DFW, Mike Bassick. And Mike's had a really, really interesting professional life from uh, being a major leaguer who was constantly fighting to just stay at the big league level. He got a chance to pitch for his hometown team and had uh, arguably the best game of his career wearing a Rangers uniform as short-lived as that career with Texas might have been. He was involved in one of Major League Baseball's biggest moments. And then afterwards, he transitioned into broadcasting and has had some ups. He's also had some downs. And uh, it was really great chatting with Mike years after the low point of his career. Uh, as a broadcaster and and how he's bounced back and getting his perspective on that and how he's matured. Uh, And I really, really enjoyed my conversation with my pal, Mike Bassett. But before we get started, just a reminder, I would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing to the channel, liking the video, commenting on the video, or just sharing the link to this interview or whatever other content you find Uh, On my YouTube channel, you can catch all of the Justice Set conversations. In addition to other sports-specific interviews and commentaries, check out the channel. Hopefully there's stuff for you and uh, your friends, but would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing, liking, commenting, or just sharing the link. It all makes a difference, and I really appreciate your continued support. All right, but now it's time for Episode 47 of the Justice Set Conversation with Mike Bassett. All right, Mike, uh, I, I like to ask people you know, what their childhood was like and, and what are the things that stand out. Uh, I want to specifically ask you what it was like growing up uh, the son of a, a major leaguer. But before we get to that, baseball aside, what stands out to you about your childhood and, and some of the, the experiences you had and, and things that are still memorable to you to this day? You know, I know you told me not to talk about baseball, but really what stands out in my childhood is just playing sports. And that was playing uh, baseball and basketball mostly. Obviously, there are times with friends that we play, you know, football in the front yard and, and stuff like that. But really just what stands out is just how excited and how much I loved uh, practicing and playing uh, sports all the time. And then to the baseball side of things, what was it like having a dad who was a big league ball player? It was it was cool, but I do explain it this way: is he was dad to me. Um, I didn't I didn't grow up um, around like major league baseball players in a clubhouse because after I was three years old, that was my dad's last year in the major league. So my mom and dad have stories of me hanging out with kind of the Minnesota Twins as like a little kid and doing things, but I don't remember uh, anything like that. I do remember, obviously, my dad being a major league baseball player and kind of the parents and uh, maybe sometimes the kids making a big deal about that. And it was cool, but I just saw him as dad. So there were times where obviously I was very lucky to have his advice in baseball and teaching me the right way to play the game and the mechanical you know, ways of throwing a baseball and swinging a bat and everything. But then there were times where I would just be like, dad, leave me alone and just let me play. Um, and I'll do it my way and my way will 
be just fine. So there are a lot of times where I treated him the way that maybe uh, you treated your dad if your dad was telling you to hold the bat a certain way or to do something. It's like, just let me play. I know what I'm doing. So there were times where even though I could get the best advice in the world, I decided I was going to do it my way. And and how did you, did you ever have to have like a conversation with him as you started to become more serious about baseball or did he ever have a conversation with you about dealing with the fact that, you know, you're, you're Mike Bassick's son and, and, you know, incidentally you have the same name, but uh, was there ever a, a, a shadow that you had to deal with or uh, any challenges, not intentionally, uh, but just because your dad was doing what you were striving to do that, that you had to kind of overcome or, or, or deal with? I never felt that way. Uh, it's a good question. And I wonder this, I wonder if you're Michael Jordan's son, or if you're uh, the son of George Brett, or so you know somebody that's really famous, great player, Hall of Famer. If it's different, but for me, I never felt pressure. I mean, my dad was uh, my hero. Uh, you know, as I got a little bit older, I think as you're talking about kind of maybe more high school, as you can kind of see, there is a path of being a Division One college baseball player or a drafted baseball player. On, on maybe the pressure of, like, can you live up to the standard that your dad lived up to in high school and professional baseball? And I just never really felt that pressure, like, I have to do this or do that because my father was able to accomplish uh, these goals. I just I wanted to be like him, and I wanted to be, obviously, better than him. It's funny, as a dad today who has a 10- and 12-year-old boy, especially my 12-year-old has a lot of questions, and he'll ask me, you know, did you ever play in a world series or an all-star game or how many hall of famers did you play with? And how come, you know, you weren't able to accomplish the things that the all-stars and the hall of famers were able to accomplish. And so I used to ask all those questions when I was a kid and not understand like, well, then how come you weren't an all-star? How come you weren't a hall of famer? And now I'm kind of having to answer those uh, same questions, but back to the kind of main point of it, Jared, I never felt like, I better do this or I'm going to be a disappointment to people that knew my father or to my father at all. I'm curious, what is the, the most enjoyable question that, that you've gotten a, a kick out of uh, from your kids? Oh gosh. I, I feel like, I feel like the, the question I get a lot of Jared is when they are playing video games or watching classic games. And right now, right. It's just all about classic games. It's all about, you know, playing the video game and maybe learning about players beforehand, they'll ask me about somebody like Michael Young, right? Michael Young, they didn't really see Michael Young play as, as recently as he's retired. And they'll be like, is Michael Young a Hall of Famer? And I'm like, no, he's not a Hall of Famer. Then why do people think he's so good? Why did he get his number retired? And I'm like, guys, to get your number retired, that means you were really good to make the Hall of Fame. You're like the top 1% or less than that of the people who played this game, like to be a Hall of Famer. So there's a lot of questions I get on. If he's so good, how come he's not a Hall of Famer? What, uh, what's it been like for you now that you have kids who are the, you know, their dad was a big leaguer, and, and you mentioned they, they play baseball. Uh, you've got, you know, possibly multiple generations of, of Bassics uh, to, to pursue baseball. But I know just from our friendship and, and, and our conversations, uh, you're involved, but you don't necessarily push them at all. Uh, do they 
have they ever felt any sort of pressure because their dad was a big leaguer and 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 even more so than when your dad was playing not only is their dad a big leaguer but in the era of the internet information about their dad is way more accessible and and their dad is also on the radio five days a week and on tv several nights a week so it did you have you ever had to deal with any of that on the the parental side of it with your kids? I don't know from my side. Maybe I just don't see it as much. But my wife does get concerned about that and worried about that at times, like uh, the kind of pushing or possibly forcing. And that's always a tough one. I always uh, feel like, am I pushing here too much? Am I being like, no, we're going to get in the cage and we're going to hit for twenty minutes. In fact, after I'm done with this. Uh, I told my boys like, Hey, I'm going to throw batting practice to you. And so that's always like that kind of struggle as a parent to be like, am I forcing them to do it? To be like, Hey, let's get in the batting cage. We're going to hit. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, but from like, let's say from my wife's perspective, it's like, yeah, but you don't want them sitting on the couch and just playing video games all day either. So for me to kind of connect with them, it's like, hey, I'm going to throw you batting practice and we're going to work on our swing and have fun playing baseball. But then I think as a parent, you're always kind of like, well, am I forcing that on them? And so I always try to ask them, you know, after we've swung the bat 25 or 30 times, uh, like, hey, are you good? Do you want more? I'll do more if you want more. So I, I try to balance that. It's, it's a great question, something that at least as me as a parent, I struggle with to be like, am I forcing this on them? Am I, should I be forcing it a little bit more? Should I not be forcing it at all? Like how much should you force push and how much should you back off? All right. So I want to go back to your career. Uh, you went to Duncanville. You're, you're very proud of your time there. Uh, and you get drafted out of high school uh, and have to make a decision of signing and beginning your professional career or going to college. Uh, and, and I believe for you that would have been Texas Tech, correct? Correct. What was, first of all, what was that experience like? I think, you know, getting drafted in, in any sports probably really neat. And what was that decision uh, process like? And, and how did you ultimately get to the decision you, you got to? Well, uh, I think it was really tough because I wanted to be drafted. Back then there was no internet of the draft there was no television of the draft you just got phone calls and it said like you've been taken at this pick and so the cleveland indians called me up approximately i believe it was the sixth round and said hey will you take this amount of money in school and i said double it and i'll sign and they said no and they hung up the phone and that was it and so at that point, I knew that we were in approximately the sixth round of the draft, which was really disappointing to me because I had heard from, uh, you know, scouts that I'd talked to that I could possibly be a, about a third round draft pick. So now I know that we're already to the sixth and I haven't been taken and the Indians just said no. So I'm really discouraged and disappointed. And so it's uh, summer league baseball. So I go and play my summer league game with the Dallas Mustangs well. The Dallas Mustangs at the time, John Patterson had been drafted in the top 10 of the draft. And so he wasn't going to play any more baseball until he signed. And then we had Pat Burns, who was drafted in the fifth round by the New York Mets. And hey, Pat Burns is still a friend of mine, but I'm like, I'm better than Pat Burns. Like, what's going on here? How come I haven't been drafted? And Jeremy Hill was drafted in the fifth round by the Kansas City Royals. So some of my buddies that I play summer ball with had already been drafted. And they had made pre-made deals that I didn't know about of like, I will sign for this amount of money. 
And I didn't do that. I kept it open on like, wherever you draft me, I'm willing to sign, but I want to sign for the round I'm drafted in like that money thinking I was going to be a top five round pick. Well, later that uh, game, I believe my mom called up another mom and said, the Indians have taken you in the 18th round. And so I was like, well, that really stinks. But I'm sitting there talking to some of my buddies and we're like, we would just play for like a free water burger pass. I mean, just, you know, how much we love baseball and weren't even thinking about money when we were talking about, you know, getting drafted, like as a freshman, sophomore and junior, like we could just get drafted and play pro ball. So a week later, the Indians come to my house after drafting me in the 18th round. And when they called me in the sixth round, they'd offered me a mount and I said, double it. Well, we ended up uh, agreeing on the, the point in the middle of that number. So back then, now there's more restrictions on how much you can sign, obviously, an 18th round draft pick. Back then, there weren't. So I got pretty much fifth round money uh, for the 18th round. But it was a tough decision. They were at my house from about 7 p.m. till about 1.30 in the morning. And I pretty much made up my mind, yes, but my dad wanted me to sleep on it. And he didn't want to be a part of, like, you do this or you don't do this because he did tell me, which was great advice uh, for an 18-year-old, which was tough. Is My dad said, I don't want to tell you to go to college, and I don't want to tell you to sign this contract because this is going to be one of those decisions that you have to live with the rest of your life. And I don't want you to say, Dad, how come you made me do this? And so it was, it was really up to me at 18 years old. He said, this is really up to you. This is your life. This is a major life decision on if you want to go play college baseball or start your professional career and, and not go to college. And I chose uh, professional baseball. It was a really tough decision, but uh, I'm glad I did. So what were some of the early challenges that you dealt with that maybe you thought, gosh, had I gone to Texas Tech, I wouldn't be dealing with this right now? I hated being a pitcher. Hated it. Hated being a pitcher. Oh, because, okay. Let's get into that then, because that, that's right. I forget it would have been first base, right? Yeah. So there were teams that liked me as a first baseman out of high school, and there were more teams that liked me as a pitcher. But there were some teams that liked me more as a first baseman because I didn't throw that hard. I was about 84 to 88 miles an hour in high school, and that's approximately what I threw uh, in the major leagues. And so. When I first went to pro ball, Jared, and all I did was pitch every fifth day, and so I had to sit there and watch four out of five baseball games. I never sat and watched a baseball game in my life as a, as a kid, and I think, I wonder how many players now, you know, there's, there's the P.O., right, that we have on kids now. Like, I don't know, like Walker Bueller. Like, I don't know if he ever played a position. I don't know. I don't know Walker Bueller that well, but, you know, a great young pitcher. I wonder, nowadays, guys just don't, play multiple positions sometimes if they're like this great pitcher they pitch well for me i i played first and pitched and i just i couldn't stand my first two years of professional ball sitting there and watching four out of five baseball games it destroyed me did you ever have conversations about maybe transitioning back to first base i know like at that time the idea of doing both was so foreign unlike today where maybe you, you know there'd be a conversation about that but did you ever try and uh, make a move back to uh, being a position player, or was that just never even a possibility? Never a possibility. We talked about it on the night where uh, Jim Stevenson, our, the scout, was at the house, and we talked about the possibility of putting in the contract that my rookie ball year, which is just two and a half months, that I would get 50 at-bats at least, a minimum of 50 at-bats. And then if uh, you know, for the next two years that I would get like 150 at-bats. 
in the minor leagues, which was for me, I played low A ball my first full season and then high A ball my next uh, full season, but they wouldn't do it. And it wasn't something that at the time I was just going to say, well, then I'm not playing. I mean, it's just something that wasn't even considered and they weren't considering it. They didn't see me as a hitting prospect and wanted me to concentrate on, on pitching. So it was something we tried to get negotiated in there, but really didn't like, you know, stand on the, you know, mountaintop and say, we're going to do that. At the time, the only guy who ended up getting something like that was Brooks Kieschnick, if you remember him yeah. out of uh, the University of Texas. But he had proven at college to be great at pitching and hitting. All I'd proven was that I was good at both of them uh, in high school. And then there wasn't jealousy, but one of my good buddies, Jason Jennings from Mesquite Poteet, who ends up going to Baylor and winning the Golden Spikes and had a good major league career, he went to Baylor and was able to hit and pitch. And I was just at the time really missing uh, the idea of also being able to hit. What were some of the, the challenges you dealt with trying to climb the ladder? I know we've had conversations and you've yeah. been really candid on air that, you know, Hey, I, I, I was having a great year or, you know, pitching well. And I, I, you know, thought I deserved a promotion and didn't get it, or maybe got a demotion or, you know, and, and all the politics that goes into it. Uh, how, how would you best articulate some of the challenges that came with that? And, and how did you learn to deal with it as opposed to just being frustrated and, and letting it kind of eat at you? Well, what we called it then, and I don't know if people call it now uh, today the same thing. I'd love to know from your perspective. Jared, do you still hear the term, term bonus baby yep. from minor leaguers, right? So I wasn't a bonus baby. I was obviously an 18th round pick who signed for a 1996, about fifth round money there wasn't much invested in me. So if I fail as a minor league prospect, it's not, it's not really a big deal for the Cleveland Indians that I don't make it out of a ball or anything like that. It's not like I was invested 500,000 or $2 million, which was approximately what guys were getting in the first round in 1996. So it's always tough because there's not really much invested in you. So you really got to make it on your own. We'd see, uh, you know, first round picks called, you know, bonus babies or even kind of second round picks where they would baby you. And no matter how bad you were doing, there was always an excuse. It seemed like for first round picks that weren't doing well, you know, he's dealing with this or something happened in his family. Like, so nothing's happening. If you weren't in the first or second round, I've always been like, so nothing can happen in our personal lives to, you know, if we don't do good, we just don't do good. But if you got a lot of money, there's always an excuse on why you're not performing uh, for the most part. And so it's challenging that way. Then the other challenge for me was this, is uh, we changed farm directors midway through kind of my development to Neil Huntington, who ended up being the Pirates general manager. Well, he just didn't have much invested in me at all either. If there was something invested in me, that was all gone at that point once Neil Huntington comes in and, uh, that was tough. Uh, but I ended up making it to the major leagues with the Cleveland Indians. And then I started getting moved around continuously. And so because of that, Jared, that's really challenging. Once you become a guy that isn't established as a major leaguer and you're just like a really good triple a kind of pitcher type of deal, and you're just filling a role. And if guys get hurt, maybe you'll go up and help out. You kind of get labeled. And breaking labels is really tough. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, how would you break that? Is it is it having conversations with the decision makers? Is it just 
performing out of your your ass to uh, break it. I mean, how would how do you combat that? Because I know what you're talking about. I think that like is applicable in a lot of different walks of life. Yeah. You know, whether it's a first impression that sticks or you know whatever the case, there there are times when someone is viewed a certain way, and no matter what they do, it that's never going to change. Uh, I mean, is it even worth trying to change it, or do you just have to hope that the right person? Uh, gets their hands on you who believes in you. Just right situation, right time, and you have to take advantage of that opportunity. There's people that broke that. Nelson Cruz for Texas Ranger fans. He was labeled as a guy who just couldn't do it at a major league level, and then he took off. And the Rangers kind of couldn't send him down. In fact, you probably know Nelly's story better than me, Jared, right? He even got sent down with the Rangers at one point, right? They stopped believing in him He was DFA'd. Yeah, and so... But he was able to break the label. One of my uh, teammates, uh, Marco Scudero, who ended up winning MVP of a World Series, that guy couldn't make the major leagues to save his life and stay up there. And yet I played with him, and all of us that played with him are like, dude, he bats 300. And I know I'm going off of basic stats here, and there were, it was more basic stats back in like the early 2000s. We're like, he bats 300, he gets on base, he plays great defense, he can play multiple positions, he's a great teammate runs the base as well. He's smart, but yet because he didn't have power uh, and he didn't really have like a premium position, which people thought the, at least the, the decision makers, they would just keep giving up on him. And finally he got a chance with the Oakland athletics and, and, and he took advantage of that opportunity and never looked back and had a great major league career. But then there's tons of others, right? An example I'll give right now to Ranger fans, especially Adrian Sampson. Right Last year, there were some games that he had that were really good games, complete games. Uh, but because he always kind of came back, I always felt like Adrian Sampson was the right-handed Mike Bassick the way like, like last season and his kind of Ranger career went. He would do something that would make you think he might be our fourth or fifth starter, and then he'd have another start where you're just like, we got to take him out of the rotation. And so he was labeled as a guy that probably can't stay in the major leagues and doesn't have nasty enough stuff to be a bullpen guy that we want to use in the seventh inning or something like that. So he decided to go over and play in Korea because he felt like, and probably rightfully so, like how you don't want to give up, but he's probably like, look, I'm probably, I'm labeled. It's really tough to really break this label. And so he went over and played in Korea. So he's going to probably have the rest of his career over, uh, in, in whether it's Korea or Japan and try to make uh, enough money to support his family that way. All right. So you make your major league debut. You mentioned with the Indians, uh, first of all, I, the, the game is a story in of itself and, and we'll get to that. But before we get to the game, how did you find out? And, and what was that feeling like knowing that you were going to get an opportunity to be a major league baseball player? Uh, it's in Buffalo for triple a Bison's. That was Cleveland Indians triple a at the time. And, Eric Wedge, who was our manager, uh, called me in the office after our AAA game was over and said, Mike, I need you to have your phone on because there's a possibility I need to give you a call. And we all knew what that meant. And so it's like, okay, so phone is on. Uh, It's early August of 2001. And I'm going to say around midnight, uh, I get the call and they say, hey, they need you. You're going up to the major leagues. I mean, this is the funny thing about being in AAA. Luckily, the athletics were destroying the Indians and destroying their bullpen, so they needed a fresh arm. 
And one of my good friends, Tim Drew, was the guy who got sent down, and I believe maybe even Ryan Drees, who uh, is a former Texas Ranger, because they had just been used in uh, games in the bullpen, and they weren't going to be able to pitch, so they needed an arm that could pitch. And I just remember just being so excited, and they're like, well, do you want us to fly you here, or do you want to drive? And it's about a three-hour drive. So I drove to Cleveland the next morning, didn't sleep barely at all. Like if I slept, it was maybe an hour, obviously calling up my family and my wife and telling her and, and my family, I did it. I got called up to the major leagues. I'm going tomorrow and, um, ended up getting up to the major leagues and really hoping I wouldn't get in that first, uh, night because I was so tired and so nervous and so excited and didn't get in. That was against the Oakland athletics. And then the Seattle Mariners uh, came to town who had the best record in Major League Baseball um, and eventually uh, got in against them. So, yeah, that game is uh, a legendary game, uh, and you had a part in it. Uh, so tell us about that game and, and your role and just what it was like being a part of a crazy, uh, a crazy game for your Major League debut. Well, it was Sunday night baseball for ESPN, so it was a Sunday, but we had a night game, and uh, it ends up, uh, Dave Burba is the starting pitcher and he gets rocked, uh, and he, uh, needs to get taken out of the game in the second inning. The Mariners at the time are having one of the best seasons in the history of baseball. They end up tying the record for most wins in a season. And the funny thing is, is they lose this game and I come in in the, I think it was the second inning, Jared. It might have been the third. It's funny how I, sh I used to remember all these things perfectly, and now I struggle at times to remember exactly. But I do remember the bases were loaded, and we were already down 4-0 to zero with nobody out. And Mike Cameron, who was having a great season, like all the Mariners, was up to bat. And I had never relieved one time in the minor leagues. So my first time ever to relieve is in the major leagues, with the bases loaded, sold-out crowd at Jacobs Field against Mike Cameron, and I get them 0-2. I execute my first two pitches, and then my next three pitches, I throw three balls, but they're close. I'm just not getting them to chase, and I'm not getting the call on borderline calls. And I'm like, I can't walk in a run. My first batter ever in the major leagues, I can't walk in a run. And so I challenge him with an 85-mile-an-hour fastball right down the middle. And he hits it, and as soon as he hits it, I think, I've just given up a grand slam home run for my first ever uh, batter. And he hits it off the wall for a base-clearing double. By the time the inning is over, Jared, my first out is Ichiro, but even that was a sacrifice fly. It's 12-0 to at the end of the inning. And I think it was the third inning, uh, now that I'm recalling. But it's 12-0, to down 12-0. to I end up giving up two more runs in the fifth, but I end up pitching six innings in the game. So, uh, I pitched through the eighth inning and we've eventually cut the game down to 14 to nine. And then we get it to 14, 11 going into the ninth and we tie it up, come back and win in extra innings. And it becomes the greatest comeback. It tied the greatest comeback in major league history. There's two other games in major league history. A team has come back from 12 runs and we come back against the Seattle Mariners who tie the record for most wins in the regular season. So in that year, that they had the greatest record or tied for the greatest record, they lost the game that they were up by 12 runs. All right. So, and, and I don't mean to jump around throughout your career, but uh, I, I have specific things I want to hit. Uh, 
you got to play for the Texas Rangers and you grew up in the area. I, I think any kid who grows up wanting to play professional sports probably dreams of playing for their favorite team and their favorite team oftentimes is uh, the local team. Whatever the case, you, you're a Rangers fan. Uh, you got to play for the Rangers. What, what was it like just to be able to say that you, you got to play for the Rangers and specifically you had one really, really good outing <laughs> with the Rangers and to, to be able to have that, to always look back on that. Uh, I don't know. What, what's that like? Super awesome. Uh, that off season, the Mets had just taken me off the 40 man roster. I was out of options and they didn't want to keep me on the 40 man for the upcoming 2004 season. So I become a free agent and I was, I was wanted. I mean, there were quite a few teams that called that wanted me to come to big league spring training, but nobody wanted me to be put on the 40 man roster. I had my best offer was from the Kansas city Royals. Uh, the Houston Astros were interested. They had the worst offer when I was getting official offers, and the the uh, Rangers were in the middle of the two, but I just wanted to play for the Rangers. I mean, there's no doubt. Like The Rangers are interested in me. It was my dream to get drafted by them. They didn't draft me. It was my dream to play for them. And so when they showed interest, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. I really didn't have a chance to make the team out of spring training. Obviously, that's always a little disappointing when you get invited to spring training and then you you usually find out within five to 10 days of spring training that they're really not that interested in you trying to compete to make the team. You're going to triple a or double a, uh, to be kind of a fill in and, and hopefully you do well enough to make it up. Well, I eventually did well enough, uh, to make it up. And, uh, I got to start in Detroit and I remember looking in the mirror, mirror, Jared, I played for the Indians and Mets. So the Rangers are my third team, but I remember in Detroit, putting on the jersey and looking in the mirror before going out to the field and was just, I'd worn the Rangers jersey for three or four days before that start, but to know that I was starting for the Texas Rangers was a really special feeling going out to the field and getting warmed up to just see myself playing in the major leagues for the Texas Rangers. I, I know you, you know, you love memorabilia, specifically cards. Do you have a card of yours uh, did you get a card made with the Rangers or did you kind of the timing of it not work out? It didn't work out. I was only up uh, for about three weeks with the Texas Rangers and made three starts. So uh, nobody felt like it was necessary tops or Bowman or Fleer or whoever to actually make a baseball card of the guy who made three starts for the Texas Rangers. <laughs> so screw all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I have one more baseball playing question. Then I want to get into life after baseball. Uh, I, I know you get asked about this a ton. The the Barry Bonds home run, you were on the mound. Uh, what was it like in that environment? I mean, that's like a World Series environment in terms of the attention and the energy uh, that was within, I think it was called at the time, Pac Bell Park, now uh, AT&T or whatever. I mean, these yeah. you know, they change 17 times a year. <laughs> uh, but what was that like? Uh, and And then what? I guess what was going through your head when you were on the mound and, and you gave up that record-breaking home run? Well, it was really cool playing for the Nationals and not having really many games that like people cared about. And all of a sudden, we're in uh, early August and we have a sellout crowd and the media, and it was really the world media being there. John Lannon pitched the first game and did great against Barry Bonds, and obviously I didn't. But I just remember during batting practice and stuff, the, the media 
the whole warning track almost down to the foul line was full. Like they were, they allowed media way past the dugouts because there was so much media there. And just the crowd was into everything and flashbulbs and cameras going off. So it's the closest I've ever been to kind of a playoff environment besides opening day. I think opening day gives you that feeling of a playoff environment. And then this game did too. And, and just unfortunately for me, I just didn't pitch that great in that game and didn't pitch that good against Bonds. Not only did he hit a homer, but he had a single and a double in his previous at bat. So it wasn't like I was fooling him uh, that day. But in the situation, I tried to make a pitch down and away in the strike zone on a 3 2 pitch, and I didn't hit my spot. The ball for a left hander, it was trying to go outside. But unfortunately, I must have got a little bit on the side of the ball because it kind of ran back towards the middle of the plate. And even Barry Bonds in his last season, if you ran a ball accidentally into the middle of the plate, he was still really good at hitting it hard. And then as he's rounding the bases, what what's going through your mind? Oh, my God, I'm the person who gave up the home run to Barry Bonds. And, you know, I know you get asked a lot or, or people, you know, maybe they don't have the courage to bring it up to you. Oh, he, he did it on purpose. Well, you know, for people who are listening who have not heard your defense of that, uh, what what would you say to people who think, oh, you know, he did it on purpose to, you know, for the attention or, you know, whatever? Yeah, I would say I didn't have, I don't think anybody has ever intentionally done something like that. And I definitely didn't do that. It's one of those things where I was fighting, the way to defend myself is I was fighting for my life every day to be in the major league. I never established myself as an everyday major league pitcher, whether in the bullpen or in the rotation. And my spot was not guaranteed uh, on the Washington Nationals after that game. I was pitching well going into that game. And then I didn't pitch that great that game. I went to Arizona and pitched bad, so back-to-back bad starts. I was out of the rotation. I was put into the bullpen after one more start. I couldn't afford to just go out there and have a bad game and be okay. Nothing against, like, um... Uh, Miner, Mike Miner, right? If he has a bad game, he has a bad game. It's okay. He's really good. He's established himself as really good. If he has a bad month, like he did in July for the Texas Rangers in 2019, it's okay. He's really good. He's an all-star. He's going to figure it out. I didn't have, I had not established myself at all. If I had a bad two games, I was either going down to the minors or getting out of the, the rotation. So for me, I couldn't afford to just take a day off or to take a batter off or anything like that. I had to try to prove every time I took the mound that I belonged in the major league. I also think people have a misguided perception that that moment made you like a millionaire. Like you've made so much money off of that moment being a part of it, which I know in talking to you is (laughs) is just not the case. I'll tell you the exact number. I think I made $10,000 off of giving that home run. The, the Topps uh, company for their 2008 top set, I signed, I don't even know how many of those sticker things you sign for an autograph card, but they sent me uh, stickers where I got like a dollar and 50 cents for every one I signed. So I think I signed, I think I signed a thousand of them, which would have been $1,500 or something like that. I got invited to do a card show in Washington, D.C., Obviously, based off of that, it wasn't like they were calling every spare Washington National up there. And I got maybe like $5,000, maybe less than that. But I think overall, I don't even know, when I said 10000 I don't even think I made $10,000 off of that. And I won't make any more money off of that. My agent at times for 
the national card shows or whatever. Like, hey, would you like to have my client Mike Baskin give up the home run to Barry Bonds to break Hank Aaron's record? And what he's heard back from everybody uh, that deal with memorabilia and stuff from Barry Bonds, they're like, look, there's so few Barry Bonds fans, and people don't really respect that record. And if we bring in just kind of the person who pitched the ball, unlike Al Downing to Hank Aaron, which everybody respects that, because so few Major League Baseball fans respect Barry Bonds' record, we don't want to bring anything into giving that record uh, you know, notice or relevance. Yeah, that's interesting how people have responded to that. So after your career, you, I think, know pretty well what you want to do, and, and that's get into uh, sports broadcasting. A lot of people know you're a big Mavs fan, so it, you know, you're not one of these uh, sports talk show hosts like Seth Payne in Houston who played in the NFL, you know, he shared with me that it was a challenge for him to get up to speed with uh, baseball and, and basketball. He obviously had the NFL covered. Well, that wasn't as much of a challenge for you. What, what was your path to uh, to getting that, that first real opportunity uh, in, in sports talk radio here in the Metroplex? Well, the way I made my name for myself is after giving up that home run, approximately a month later, uh, they're getting, you know, the season's winding down, and I talk to the Washington Nationals, and I say, hey, you know how Baseball Tonight and Sports Center they have on current players to break down the playoffs? I would love to do something like that. And they're like, okay. Um, and I'm like, is there anything I can do or anything? And they're like, well, here's the number of the people that we know at ESPN. I called them myself. And the reason that I got to do it at the time for the first round, they brought in me and Curtis Granderson. And the reason they brought in me and they told me is because they're like, Mike, usually we have agents who call up and we have to negotiate money to get them to Bristol, Connecticut and to pay them for their time. And you literally were like, I'll do it and do it for free. So we were like, yeah, let's let we, we like the interviews that he gave. So that's how I kind of broke into media. I did intern uh, with the Bob and Dan radio show in 2005 on the ticket. So that's my first introduction into uh, broadcast media. I did that for free during an off season. And then in 07 doing, um, it was called cold pizza, the morning show on ESPN at the time doing one segment on baseball tonight and then doing ESPN news for two or three nights in a row and then flying back to uh, Dallas. That is pretty much what broke me in to um, sports talk radio into the media then eventually getting a producer job uh, with Norm Hitchkiss and then eventually getting a job over at the fan with G bag nation. And now with KNC masterpiece. And while you were uh, producing Norm's show, you had an intern by the name (laughs) of Jared Sandler. I'll always remember that you and your dad took us out to the macaroni grill for a lunch. That's right. At the end of the the summer. Uh, So, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, not a lot, uh, you you had a, a you were on like a great path of the ticket and then uh you, know, you made some comments during the, the playoffs uh, and it got picked up nationally and all of a sudden the tickets in a position they you know they they can't just not act on this w- what was that experience like for you and how did you come back and and grow from that experience as opposed to letting it define you well it's definitely I'll say the worst moment of my life so far. And it was just something that, you know, and I hate saying this because it's like people say, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. It's, it's something I didn't believe in. It was something that 
you know, I shouldn't have done, shouldn't have said, should have known better. But at the time, uh, I was drinking at a bar and I wasn't thinking straight. And it was something at the ticket where it was a drop. And obviously when they used the drop, they didn't use it. And obviously the way that I used it on Twitter, and it was a horrible thing that I did. And I was, I was personally depressed about it, felt horrible about it, obviously wanted it to go away. And, and it's part of my story. Um, and it was tough uh, to, to be, to be nice about it and to, to not have to talk about it for an hour. It was tough. It was horrible. I deserved everything that I got from that, the hatred that I got losing my job because of it. I deserved all of the punishment, um, that I got. But luckily, um, a year plus later, I ended up getting an interview at the fan and Bruce Gilbert at the time was the program director and the Rangers were about ready to enter the playoffs in 2011. And he wasn't going to hire me for anything, but I just said to him, I said, Hey, I know the Rangers have the playoffs coming up next week. If you're having a, like a post game show for all of these Ranger games at the time, the fan didn't have the Rangers. I said, I would love to just do uh, some of the post game shows and just show you what I can do. I'll do it for free. And so he called me back the next day and he said, look, I can't let you do it for free. I literally can't. So I'll pay you a few bucks. Uh, and the only way I'm going to see if, you know, you'll fit in here and be any good is to give you that chance. And luckily the Rangers made it all the way to the world series and into seven games. So it gave me a lot of time on the fan and that's how, I eventually got back into sports talk radio. And I think it's a, a cool story because no one's perfect and people make mistakes, you know, regardless of, of the intent, you know, and, and yours, obviously no intent to, you know, to have the impact it had. And unfortunately there are people who let those mistakes define them. And, and I, uh, you know, I, I certainly am not perfect. And I had an incident uh, a few years ago where, you know, something got on air, a, a bad word and, you know, I, gosh, you know, I was depressed for months because I was worried I was going to lose my job. And I'm incredibly thankful that, you know, that wasn't the case. But, uh, you know, I, I just think what you've been able to accomplish since says a lot more about you than that one moment. And I just, uh, you know, it's not something I really bring up uh, about to you because I don't really think of Mike Bassick as the guy who said that. I think of Mike Bassick as the guy who's established himself, uh, you know, in this market as a respected voice for sports radio and, and also my friend and, and the person I've gotten to know, but I do think, and I've never told you this. I, if, when I do think of that, which is very rarely, if it really, if ever it's the positive side of it and what you've been able to accomplish since, as opposed to just that moment. And, and I don't think it's, uh, and, and you can probably attest to this. It's not easy to come back from something so public. A lot of people make mistakes. They make bad mistakes, but they make them privately. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you had to do it publicly, uh, and, and there are added challenges. And so I, I, there's not really a question, I guess I'm just sharing with you. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's awesome how you've been able to respond in the example that you've set in doing so. Well, thanks. And I will tell you just to end this, uh, kind of part of the, uh, you know, conversation is I struggled with that until about 2018. I would say I thought about it daily and felt bad about myself and shameful about myself for a good eight years and really through therapy, uh, which helped out for me to let it go and, and to not shame myself every day of my life for something, you know, that was really stupid. 
All right, last thing, Mike. Uh, you're, you know, it's crazy because when we look at athletes through uh, the athletic prism, we think of guys your age as old. You know, we're we're, we're talking yeah. about Adrian Beltre, Dirk Nowitzki. They're old, but no, they're not, and and you're not. Uh, what do you still want to accomplish? Uh, you know, you're now obviously uh, in the you know the sports broadcasting world beyond you know what you'd like to accomplish as a parent because I know that's you know right, a tremendous yeah. priority, but. From a, a, a professional standpoint, what what are the things you'd still like to accomplish? You know, from a professional standpoint, I love what I'm doing. I, I love getting to be on the middays and talk all sports. So to be able to not just talk Texas Rangers and Major League Baseball, but to talk basketball and, and NFL football. I want to keep doing the Rangers pre and post game show. I, that is really special to me that I get to be somewhat a part of the Texas Rangers uh, still. So accomplishing more, I don't know if I want to accomplish more. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, Jared. And then I know you said just from a professional standpoint, but really something on my mind is, is right now and really all the time. But right now, especially during uh, the coronavirus and, and everything like this, is just how can I help? And what are different ways? I love your charity, Jared. I love you know how passionate you are about helping and giving back. And I just think of stuff like that quite a bit. Like if I have, whether it's 10 more years or hopefully 42 more years, I'm 42 years old right now on this earth, that I can, I can help people. And, and so when those opportunities present themselves, that in some way I'm able to help. And Mike's been super helpful to me and I can vouch for what he said there at the end not an empty claim Mike is always looking to try and make a difference uh, whether it's doing his own thing or supporting others and and I certainly appreciate the many ways in which Mike has helped me or, or my charity the Sandlot Children's Charity Well, that's episode 47 with Mike Bassick. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, A rare opportunity for Mike to to really open up about uh, some of the lows in his career. I always appreciate when people are willing to talk about some of the hurdles, the challenges, the the times in which they weren't perfect, but but far from it, uh, and speak to the candor in which Mike did. And it was really interesting hearing Mike uh, share some of his stories, but also... uh, you know, not just the, the times of struggle, but the times in which he's thrived as a, as a professional athlete. Really, uh, really compelling stuff. I appreciate uh, Mike. I appreciate you for tuning in. Like, subscribe, share, comment. That's the, uh, the big four. I would really appreciate if you do one, two, three, or all four of those things uh, to, to help. It really does make a difference. All right, that's episode 47 of the Justice Set Conversation. Episodes 48 and 49 coming next week, so stay tuned. Until then, be safe, stay healthy. Talk to you later.